Welcome to the Inexplicable Thoughts Podcast. This is your host, Franklin. Today, I'm joined by my co-host for the day, Khalil. How are you doing, Khalil? I'm pretty good. Thanks, Frank. How's our weekend so far? Is it is it snowy in Ohio right now? Oh, of course. Of course it is. Uh, it, it, it didn't snow uh, and stick, but um, it snowed pretty much. I'm jealous. Uh, today, but Everywhere I go right now in Illinois, it's just a solid foot and a half of snow. And it's like, ugh. <laughs> I cannot wait until summer so this stuff can just go away and we can stop talking about COVID, snow, and just enjoy good vibes again. Like I, I It's my third right. summer in Chicago, and I still haven't been able to enjoy a full Chicago summer, which is super sad. Oh, yeah, that's definitely unfortunate. But I was just telling someone that I'm like, this this winter specifically is just like really, really rough. Like, uh, obviously, like it's COVID involved and like you know that kind of sucks the fun out of everything but like this winter specifically i just can't wait to get over like so much has happened in such a small period of time like biden getting inaugurated texas rush limbaugh dying all these celebrities dying we got to remember pop smoke and kobe's death again it's like i just need a break and some some sunshine right now at this point no absolutely i agree 100 so how's work been for you uh, it's been really good. Um, I've been uh, taking on some additional responsibilities. Um, uh, my new role includes uh, like new fund underwriting. Okay. Um, so I've been, uh, I'm on like my first one right now. Uh, we're underwriting a fund, industrial fund that's launching. Um, and so I'm like, you know, taking lead on the uh, the nuts and bolts under the hood and putting together the memo. and uh taking it to ic so it's like my my first go around so kind of nervous is the fun for your company is it for an external client oh yeah so yeah it's like a fund manager um that they're actually a new manager um they typically operate on the public side so they have like a couple different reits um for different property types but now they're launching a private uh open-end fund and so um we're helping them launch it and um uh, I and the PM that I uh, help work for, the portfolio manager, um, have been tasked with uh, doing the underwriting for the fund. Okay, that's awesome. And then, yeah, we're taking it to um, our investment committee and, you know, we'll see what happens. So is the open funds primarily for high net worth individuals? Uh, so, like, at Townsend, you can have a high net worth individual, but um, typically we use, like, institutional capital. Okay. Um, so, you know, you know, pension funds, insurance companies, et cetera. Um, they, you know, obviously have their allocation that they, um, get from those underlying, you know, people's, you know, paychecks and, you know, they just don't want to sit on the money. So, you know, they invest it. Try to make more money um, back. The people listening. Yeah. Who, who may not know like how this works. Um, and so, uh, that pension fund will say, you know, Hey, uh, we want to give 5% of our allocation to real estate as a diversifier um, and they'll come to Townsend's discretionary side and say, Hey Townsend, we want to give you our allocation. We want you to invest it for us. And then they pay us to do it. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I've actually gotten some exposure to that in my field, just talking to clients and a lot of them are funds that, you know, take, you know, huge chunks of money and just invest in multifamily and, Right now, the hot spot is value add or light value add property. So right now, we're seeing a lot of clients sort of focus and double down on that sector, which is interesting because there's a ton of it right now, but there's also a ton of core 
properties available in the market. So we're, we're intrigued to see, you know, what sort of appetite investors have moving forward. Um, so, yeah, I agree 100%. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is kind of based off of the whole concept of high net worth. Um, you and I both saw that post earlier this week about net worth versus income. And I wanted to talk to you about, you know, which one's more important to you, how you assess either, and, you know, what what is the goal for you in, in regards to how you achieve those different levels in your future? Um, I think that... I think that net worth is slightly neutral, slightly neutral, more important. Um, so like, yeah, I think it, it is essentially more important to, you know, have more assets than you have uh, uh, liability and thus further equity. Um, so I think like income is also still important, but I think like some, for some reason, this generation is uh, like, Fix, fixated on income, like having multiple sources of yeah. income, which you know obviously is, is not inherently like a bad thing. Yeah, it's super super important. Um, but I think you generate income in hopes to increase your network. Yeah. So so I, I think like it, it's a means to an end. I don't think that the income is a, is an end end point. I think it's just a means to uh, in, increasing your network. I agree, and and to the listeners who are who are confused on what we're talking about. Um, it, it, this conversation spawns from an Instagram post discussing the different tranches of net worth and where it places you. And I reposted it on my story and it essentially said if you're making $500,000 or if you have $500,000 in net worth, you're considered poor. And then each tranche increased in size up into the point where upper middle class is roughly around $2 million in net worth. And a bunch of people DM me and were like, why is that true? Like, this doesn't really make sense. And then the people who understood what it meant were like, this is kind of accurate, um, very sad for our current like society. And, you know, I even had a conversation with my sister. She's like, I don't understand what this means. And it's like net worth. This is all inclusive of total assets. So when you, I think of $500,000, people are like, that's so high. And I'm like, it, it's not really. Because if you have a, say you live in Ohio and you have a decent three bedroom, two bath, you know, $250,000 house, you know, your, your net worth is automatically $250,000. Plus what other what other yeah. remaining assets you have. So think about the number of people out there who have, you know, a house and a car and they have their income and their savings account and they have, you know, a, a sporadic amount of other assets. And I'm pretty sure even like life insurance policies or different sorts of policies are included in that. I'm not entirely sure, but I know that certain e-liquid assets are considered a part of that net worth. And so yeah. by the end point, you know, the average let's say everyday citizen can easily be in that $500,000 tranche just with having a house and a car and, you know, some passive or active income plus your savings account. Um, and then, so the next tranche was like creeping up towards middle-class where it's closer to a million dollars. And, you know, people don't think that's um, realistic, but it's like, if you have a house, you have two cars, you're married, you know, your wife has money, a little bit of money, you have a little bit of money saved away. I'm not talking about like a substantial amount of money, but it's a little bit, you know, that sort of pushes up your net worth even more. And so it's just interesting to me how much people don't consider the balance between net income and net worth, because you should be acquiring assets because assets are a lot easier to pass down. It's a lot easier to pass down a house than cash, in my opinion. Um, I agree. Uh, you know, you have to set up trust, you have to set up wills, you know, a bunch of other complicated stuff. Whereas 
real estate, there's a lot more easily accessible portals to pass on. Um, you do have to take on taxes, but like it's a lot less concerning to do that than with cash. And so I was just thinking about. But I, I, I do think the trust, the trust route is 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 a very very efficient route um, to have you know said real estate to pass down, uh, but in the name of the yeah. trust. Um, to and that way it doesn't have to transition from person to person. The trust transitions from person to person instead of the underlying yeah. assets. I think it's I think that's a very efficient way. To Absolutely. And so for me, it, it's always interesting seeing, you know, people are like, oh, $20 million was, you know, like slightly rich. It wasn't like rich, rich. And I was like, you got to think like some of these people, you know, I know dudes that I work with that are, you know, very affluent, very, you know, wealthy families, but in their eyes, they're not as wealthy as the people ahead of them. So it's like the different tranches of net worth is always just so interesting to see how people operate and maneuver in those, those areas, because it's always constantly knowing that there's someone ahead of you or there's someone in a different bracket than you. And especially with the way taxes work and the way people operate within those spaces, it's just, it's fascinating that like you could have a high net income and still not have a high net worth if you're not a very good manager of assets and liabilities, because it's something I'm actually learning as I go through, you know, my first couple years of working is that you can really blow through your income at a very quick rate, but net worth is sort of absolutely <laughs> no. I, absolutely, that conversation we had offline uh, definitely pointed that yeah. out. <laughs> and it's like you can, you know, make one hundred fifty thousand dollars and spend one hundred forty thousand dollars, and all you're left is with this ten thousand dollars. Whereas someone who makes eighty thousand dollars only spends forty thousand dollars and invests twenty to thirty, you know, on real estate or on you know the stock market could substantially increase their net worth in comparison to you, which is why I say that, you know, I agree with you on your, your slightly neutral um, lean towards net worth versus net income. Cause it's like, if you are smart in regards to managing your money, you know, your net worth will, you know, last for the long term, whereas net income can be taken from you at any point. And, 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 and that's, that's something that people need to start pivoting towards and understanding that like net worth should be, you know, a slight priority over net income because you do need net income to achieve net worth, but net worth will always be around if you manage your assets properly. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And so it's just interesting talking to people and seeing how they, uh, how they approach things and how they, how they get things done. Um, one, one thing that I wanted to discuss based on uh, net worth is something that, you know, you and I have talked about before in regards to investing in real estate, um, real estate, Obviously, one of the biggest things you can do to increase your net worth and add value to your life. Um, over the last couple of weeks, I've been having conversations with people who are my age, slightly older. We've been discussing, you know, buying properties versus buying stocks. And I was kind of curious, what's your take on what's more opportunistic at this point in our lives, being you know young millennials in our mid twenties, uh, investing in a piece of property or investing in stocks? Um, I think. I think investing in stocks is technically more opportunistic. Um, like if you're going to take on more risk in hopes to have a greater return, I think the best way to do that as an individual is in the stock market um, because you can you know, make long bets on uh, different sectors, different stocks. Um, you can, you can even go to small cap and, you know, small cap's been on fire the past year. Like, fire ridiculous um so like someone was to like you know have had gotten into small cap you know say a year ago at a pretty good cost basis they've 
would have had a significant return, um, double-digit return uh, over the past one year. Um, so I think more opportunistically, the stock market is the way to go if you're looking to add on some extra um, you know, risk-adjusted return uh, opposed to I view real estate as more of a long-term value play, um, income-based uh, type of strategy. Uh, I just think um, it, it's a bit safer, you know, obviously being that it's a tangible asset and that, you know, the real estate market moves on a lag in comparison to the stock market. Um, so you're not going to have those, you know, fluctuations that volatility that comes with being in the stock market, uh, which can help or hurt you depending on, you know, what your portfolio is positioned like. Um, so I think that if, if, you know, if you're looking for the long, the long shots, the, you know, the money makers, then I would go to the stock market. Um, especially like in, in this COVID environment, I think there's a lot of dislocation still like flowing through the market. So I think you can find some pretty good, um, cost bases on on stocks in certain sectors that you you know want to get exposure to absolutely um i had a conversation with a friend who works for um he works in trading and we were having a conversation about this because he was he was interested in investing in real estate and we had talked about potentially doing a property together and then we recently discussed it again and he brought up this conversation and was just sort of like you should probably focus more on stocks right now at your current current age and your current position because in regards to a ROI return on investment, it just makes more sense to invest in the stock market versus real estate. And he brought up some very, you know, <laughs> some very, very, very poignant points in which he, he discussed, you know, if you or I, you know, had money, you know, a year ago during the downturn and we put it into the market versus putting say we had ten thousand dollars and you put one of us puts ten thousand dollars into the market. And the other person puts $10,000 into a small rental property in the buttfuck middle of nowhere and, you know, had a $200 margin on the property per month. And I, and the other person put the $10,000 in the market and invested in, you know, Disney, Amazon, um, Tesla, you know, all these other high earning stocks, Apple, Microsoft, Google, you know, our return would vary very much because you would have to deal with, you know, the risk of, you know, what if a pipe burst on the property? What if, you know, there's a construction contract services charge that you weren't expecting in regards to, you know, salting, landscaping, um, you know, roofing, you know, resurfacing the parking lot, whatever it may be. And, and that $200 per month margin now gets cut to like 25 bucks. Whereas if you look at Google over the last year, Google's valuation has gone through the roof. Apple's gone up. Amazon's gone up. Um, a ton of stocks in the market have gone up, amid, and I would I would like to know amid uh, pending litigation as well. So um, I, th- I think that's a testament to where the market is at. Right Absolutely. Now. And so for me, he made a great point, and he, he 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 essentially made this one single point about investing in real estate versus the stock market. And he was like, if you put a hundred dollars into the market right now, is it going to go up or down in the next five years? And more than likely not, if you pick the right stock, it's going to go up and the valuation is going to go up. If you put $100 into real estate, there's no guarantee it can go up. It's going to go up. There's a, there's a huge risk that it could go down. It all depends on what's happening within that market, what's going on with your investment, what's going on with your management. And so he made a great point. And he was like, it's more risk averse to put your money into the stock market and pick good quality stocks 
more blue chip stocks than it is to buy, invest in a, in a real estate property. And what I mean by blue chip stocks is, you know, your Apples, your Amazons, your Disney's, um, your Google's or Alphabet, sorry, um, your Tesla's, you know, st stocks along those lines. And he made a great point. And he said, you know, a lot of people get uh, scared away from the Disney's and the Amazon's, but they're continuously outperforming the market. They're continuously outperforming their competition. And the other thing that he mentioned about Amazon is he was like, you know, if you really pay attention to what's going on, he said, if you buy Amazon now, within the next five years, he has a huge assumption that the Amazon stock will split, which will increase the valuation and increase your money. And he's like, that's a smart move for the long term versus the short term. And so, you know, I've been spending a lot of time talking to my friends that are invested in real estate. And it's like, yeah, you make a lot of money, but do you want to, do I want to spend that much time managing the property? No. Do I want to spend that much time looking into the underwriting of that property? No, I, I underwrite every day, every week, you know, for my job. I don't want to go home on the weekends and spend that for my, and my free time doing that for an investment. Whereas I can just understand the, you know, the PE ratios and, you know, the expenses of a property. I can go through a, a 10K. Of a, of a firm and, and understand what's going on with the firm. I can look into the CEO and understand what's going on in the firm and within an hour or two, get a feel for that company and be like, Hey, I'll buy 50 shares of that company. And then all I have to do is occasionally monitor the news with that company. Whereas, you know, my, my girlfriend, she, uh, she, last night she, she was texting me and, um, her landlord, you know, owns like an $800,000 property that they live on. And he was out of the country for a while because of a family emergency. And so, you know, he comes back yesterday and he texts them. He's like, hey, my room in the basement flooded and he shuts off all the water. And the first thing I could think of was if it was you or I who were invested in a, in a real estate, the amount of money that we have to put out to one, unflood that basement, repair the water damage, check the pipes, get someone down there, reconstruct a room and then get it ready to rent out or live in again. You or I don't have the free cash flow to sort of front that upfront cost. And so now you're taking a loss on whatever profits you had on the front end, and it's going to affect you on the back end, whereas that wouldn't happen with stocks. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think I think the risk is different. I'm not going to say like which one, you know, it has, you know, more or less risk. I just think it's inherently different just based on the, the asset class. Um, and I think it depends on your strategy in real estate. Like if I'm a, you know, value add, you know, house flipper, um, then that's not really like a concern of mine. Like if, if I'm, you know, doing a, a, a renovation uh, of this property and my intent is to, you know, come in, buy it, spend, you know, two months fixing it up, two and a half and then, you know, another month, month and a half to find uh, a tenant, um, you know, within that, you know, five month period, uh, I don't think that any of the, the maintenance costs uh, are going to be that significant. Um, obviously, I think the, you know, the renovation cost is, is going to be, you know, pretty high up front. But um, I think once you have a tenant and then you, you, once you get the tenant, you sell it uh, as like as a total package. Um, I think that risk is passed on to the to the the, the buyer yeah. of, the, of that property. Um, so I think like depending on your approach to real estate, you know, there are you know certain risks you do and don't need to consider. How do you how do you think managing cash flows though 
you know, is, is imperative to, to that business and to, to that mentality though. Yeah. I think it's super important. Um, even, even in, you know, my stock investing strategy, I, you, you know, that I focus on dividends and I focus on, um, dividend growth companies to, <laughs> that are going to give me, um, an income to, you know, cushion, cushion my cost basis, you know, and, grow as long as I can grow above, you know, of a 4% annual yield on, on all my positions. I think that's pretty good. I'm above inflation. Um, and got a, you know, on average 2% cushion to my losses every year. Um, and if I don't have any losses, you know, everything on, on top is, you know, appreciation. Yeah. So I think like the, the approach to real estate is kind of the same where your goal is to find a good, credible tenant um and once once i have about a portfolio of four to five properties i would start you know getting an asset management company um to take care of things like that like i don't want to have 10 properties and have to be the the active landlord for every property it's a lot of work um yeah that's counterproductive that's a uh, very counterproductive so that kind of has always been my approach to like scaling you know my individual real estate acquisitions like I don't want to, you know, be the, the, the manager for all that stuff. I want to focus on, you know, looking at markets, looking at demographics, seeing, you know, where my next acquisition is going to come from. Uh, I wouldn't want to, you know, be the asset manager. Yeah. So in regards to assessing liquidity and cash flows, whether it be, you know, investing into real estate or investing in a stock market, how do you approach that in your personal life to put you in position? you know, to pick either one? Um, I try to stay as liquid as possible um, while still making money. Um, I, you know, keep a, a savings account of like a, you know, just in case fund. Uh, but everything else is I keep in, you know, either my uh, IRA, I got a Roth account, um, or I have just like a, a regular uh trading account. Um, and so like I, I will take like a portion of my paycheck um, every month. And obviously I have my 401k from my work and get the match from them. But I also have like a Roth that like I add money to every month as well. Um, Cause I focus more on the, the long-term game. Um, I'm okay with, you know, sacrificing a little bit right now in order to preserve a, a good long-term strategy. Yeah. Um, so I stay I stay liquid um, enough to you know cover any expenses you know surprise expenses or any you know just in case type of things and you know to live comfortably uh, but for the most part um, you know I'm trying to position myself to be well off in the long run. I think that that was you know a huge topic of a conversation for me last year. I'm um, talking to some guys that were mentoring me in the game. Um, when I was originally trying to invest in real estate, I got a very important piece of advice from someone who owned, you know, three or four properties and was looking to acquire a fifth. And he said that when he approaches, you know, new real estate buys, he actually reduces the amount of money that he contributes to his 401k Roth IRA because he needs more cash up front rather on the back end. And so he'll use the cash he saves from putting into his Roth IRA and he'll put it towards his bank account. So he'll, he'll set an automatic amount to take out of his paychecks and directly deposit to a savings account or his checking account and then you know, split that off by himself. And so 
mm-hmm. when he's not investing in real estate, he actually he almost triples, you know, his 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 Roth IRA, his Roth and four hundred one k contributions because he's like, I'm trying to make up for, you know, what I I essentially saved on and used on real estate, and you know, he's actually done you know some very intriguing, you know, financial vehicle moves with, you know, using your four hundred one k to take out a loan to finance a property and then paying back the four hundred one k through his normal contributions at work, which I think is smart because it's like, it's, it's using a system that is designed to help you to, to the best of its abilities. And so one of the things I always look at is, you know, high yield savings accounts. I think that's a great way of trying to beat the, um, the inflation of the dollar. Um, and so, you know, that's something I looked at. I looked at the Marcus gold, the, the Goldman Sachs Marcus account. I looked at the Alley bank, you know, online, um, savings account. It's a high yield account. Um, I, I've also, you know, invested in my 401k and my Roth. I'm in the process of opening another Roth in a Blackstone account over the next couple of years. Um, not the next couple of years, the next couple of months. Um, and so for me, it's just interesting seeing, you know, the different vehicles and the different ways you can approach it. I think that the biggest thing for me as a millennial is understanding how, how important it is to reduce expenses which I think is hard. Like, you know, we're the generation where, you know, we're supposed to have our fun right now. We're supposed to get that out of our system and enjoy life and travel and go to the bar and stuff like that. So it's hard. You know, I I talked to my friends last night and I was like, if you ever go through your credit card statements and look how much you spent on lifts last year, you'll be shocked. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I agree a hundred percent. And so right now it's just, it's interesting strategizing because, you know, right now I'm, I'm down to a system where I automatically have percentages taken out of my checks and put into my Roth or into my 401k. And then I do an additional distribution into my savings account per month and then an additional distribution into, you know, my, uh, my high, high yields, you know, savings account or, you know, stock market, I'll put it into my brokerage account with Fidelity or I'll put it with Robinhood and I'll buy some crypto. And it's just like the different ways you can create, you know, those multiple streams of income, whether passive or active in regards to your approach. And so for me, you know, one of the things I'm looking at is, you know, completing the full picture. And I think COVID sort of forced me to, you know, reassess, you know, I opened a, uh, a health or a life insurance policy and, you know, try to get that out of the way to stay proactive. You know, I'm looking into establishing a disability program. I'm looking into starting a Blackstone account. You know, I want to start, you know, using a wealth advisor to, you know, have two different brokerages, you know, handling my cash flow. Just so I have like one that I monitor on my own, then I, you know, create my own portfolio style. And then I have another one where, you know, guys trying to get me as high yields as possible. And so for me, it's just interesting seeing, you know, what other people are doing and how they're staying proactive in the market in regards to, you know, addressing liquidity and cash flow issues. And it's something that I feel like is way less discussed than it should be because it affects every aspect of your life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think like you touched on like the, 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 the head of it right there was just, you know, it involves every aspect, like without cash flow, you can't do anything. Um, so I think like effectively managing that cash flow is like of the utmost importance. Um, and I think you're on definitely on the right track um, with the diversified accounts, um, different strategies to, you know, each account, different approaches. Um, just you know, stay ahead of the game. Uh, I um, I focus like my um, my four hundred one k through my work um on like a little bit more of an aggressive strategy, um just because I'm getting that seven percent um 
match or pop, you know, every, every year. They're getting 7%. Um, so that's yeah, a great yeah, match program. Yeah, great. <laughs> great so I have a, a, um, a, you know, a 7% pop every year. So like if, if I can, you know, take on a little bit more risk, the, the 7% pop is going to cushion some of that volatility. Yeah. Um, so, but on my Roth account, um, I focus, uh, more on, um, dividend growth, uh, because of the, you know, tax benefits. Um, so if, you know, in my regular account, you know, if I receive a dividend, you know, at the end of the year, I have to pay taxes on that dividend, whether I have, you know, drip on or not, which for people who are listening, drip is a dividend reinvestment program where when a company gives you dividends, it automatically reinvests it back into that um stock or asset to increase your position with it. Yeah. Um so it's kind of like a you know a compounding effect, an additional compounding effect uh over what the market is already giving you. Yeah. Um so uh but you know in your traditional accounts uh you have to pay taxes on that whether you have your fund or not. So with the Roth account you don't have to pay taxes on those dividends. So like it's um uh, very accretive to, you know, build on those positions organically while also adding to the positions um, with your paycheck. It's double double uh, so effect it's with compounding interest. Yeah. 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 It's a sweetener on top of it. Um, so anyone who's, you know, looking to start a Roth account, I implore you to um, look at, you know, dividend growth strategies and um, try to position it to take maximum benefit of the tax uh, cuts they get. Yeah. So one of the things I always think, you know, our generation seems to overlook in regards to the cash flow liquidity situation, and especially, you know, now doubling down on my focus in multifamily and apartments is the conversation of rent to income ratio. Um, and I, I was curious, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that? And how do you think our generation handles that as a demographic? Um, so me personally, I try to stick around um, 30% of my gross. Um, if I can stay at or under 30% of my growth, gross monthly income uh, for my monthly rental income, I think I'm in good shape. Um, because, you know, obviously, you know, the quote unquote best financial advice is to save every dollar you have and never spend any yeah. money. Always like, and never yeah. out. Shout out Nipsey. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Shout out to Nip. Um, but, you know, in, in, in reality, um, you're you want to have a lifestyle that you deem comfortable and that you um, deem worth it. And so I feel like housing is one of the things that, you know, people housing and, you know, transportation are the two things that people will spend, you know, top dollar on to be comfortable or, you know, live that lifestyle that they want to. Um, So I think like 30% um, of total housing, cost or expense um for the month of your gross income is, is worth it yeah um and so I, I use that as like a general uh rule of thumb uh for transportation i try to do um like 15 percent uh i'm not a big i'm not a big transportation guy um, do you own a car like you know uh i do not i had one um but you know i live downtown cleveland i work downtown cleveland um i go to bars and clubs downtown Cleveland. So it, it had got to a point where I was getting in my car like once every two weeks just to go get my hair. Yeah. And you know, I'm paying for, you know, parking downtown, I'm paying for gas, I'm paying for maintenance, et cetera. 
Um, it just it wasn't worth it. Um, you know, my office is literally right across the street from my apartment. Yeah. And then like, you know, bars, clubs, et cetera, are like right in my backyard in the flats. Um, and so, and West Six right in my front yeah. yard. Uh, so, you know, it was just like, it was really no need to have a car. The cost was so just I ended up not selling worth it, it, yeah. No, not at all. And, you know, I'm saving an additional, you know, 600 bucks a month on not having to pay for all of that stuff, like parking and gas maintenance, et cetera. Um, so it made sense for me not to, not to have it. Um, so I sold it and, you know, added, you know, that, that additional $600 margin, um, into my, my monthly income and it's been helpful. Okay. Yeah. So why, why, why do you look through the lens of gross income versus net, um, in regards to your cost assessment? Um, I think like, I think net is too variable. Um, with tax code changes. Um, so I think like, it's like a universal rule. Um, I I think gross makes a little bit more sense because just because we make the same amount of money every year, doesn't mean we're going to pay the same amount of taxes. Um, so yeah. So I think that that variability from person to person, uh, you know, is, it is what it is. It's variability. So I think like, as like a general consensus, I try to stick to gross. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm kind of with you in the same ballpark, although I do agree with your assessment of gross versus net. I've predominantly used the the benchmark of net instead of gross, but I definitely see where you're coming from and actually might change it um, in regards to how I assess the amount of rent I'm using in comparison to income. But yeah, I am with you. I think that the general rule of thumb is 30 to 35 percent um, rent to income. Um, Usually, I wouldn't say go over that unless you're in a high, you know, market area. Like, no offense, New York City, Chicago, San Fran, a lot of those areas, it's very difficult <laughs> to do the thirty to thirty-five percent. But you know, yeah, anyone listening from Ohio, you know, from Indiana, Pennsylvania, like more moderate, you know, middle ground rent areas, you should take into consideration how much you're paying in rent, and it only should be. 30 to 35 percent of what you make in a month um anything over that it's just it's too high it's a poor mismanagement of funds it's it's putting you in a, a difficult position to balance expenses long term you know whether it be an immediate a medical emergency or you know you, you want to take a trip and go on a vacation i definitely think that's something that people need to more actively monitor and pay attention to it's something i t- i talk about whenever you know i move apartments is understanding you know what are my cash flows going to look like for that month in regards to my expected expenses versus, um, you know, how much I'm bringing in, and and, and something that I'm I'm trying to get better at over the next couple of years is, um, as you and I talked about off air, I was very bad at managing my expenses last year because I spent a lot on rent, and then I was also at the bar a lot, spending a lot on Ubers, Lyft, food, etc. Et <laughs> yeah. Like one of the things I yeah. cut this year compared to last year was I went from buying lunch every day to packing as much as possible because you don't realize how much just shipping out, you know an extra 60 to 70 bucks a week, you know, saves you in a month or in a year and, and in a couple of years. And that's money that I could be spending, you know, reinvesting into the market. Like the last two months, I've probably put more money into the market and into my savings accounts than I have in the last year of living in Chicago, because I just got more, you know, constraint about, you know, my expenses in the sense that I, you know, just tried to chip away at a couple of things and just, two or three changes in my in my spending habits actually led to quite a considerable and noticeable amount of you know freed up cash flow um and that's something that yeah i think i think that's 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's it right there. Like the the chipping away at like, you know, like minor nuances and like, you know, little things that you think that, oh, it's just, you know, 10 bucks, 20 bucks here. But like, you know, those compound, those definitely compound. Quickly. And that's, that's the one thing that I feel like needs to be like just drilled into people our ages head is that compounding is, you know, something that works completely in your advantage. It, it, it ends up, you know, not showing on the paper in the first month. But it shows up on the paper, you know, month six, month seven, month eight, month nine, because as time passes, it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows at a variable higher than if you didn't have it compounding. And so um, that's something I'm definitely trying to take advantage of now is, you know, you and I are in our mid 20s. And it's going to it's going to be fun to, you know, be married and have kids one day. And we look at, you know, what we started now versus 10 years from now and, and say, like, oh, this is only where it's at right now because we started a year. We started early to grow on top of each other. And it'll, it'll be a, a nice secure feeling to know that you know at, at year 50 or year 60 we have a nice nest egg to you know fall back on or put our kids through college with or whatever it may be and and, and be secure and be comfortable in our lives so one of yeah. one of the things you know I, I i was curious about that i wanted to ask you um obviously you know you're from the cleveland area you, you went to school at ohio state um Cool, cool apartment downtown. You know, I like the pictures that you posted on Instagram. Um, have you ever thought about leaving, you know, Cleveland and, and what cities would you move to if, if you did? Um, yes. Uh, well, yeah, one, I do. I do like living downtown Cleveland. Um, the opportunity here um, after college made more sense than it did uh, the others um, positions I had available. Then. Absolutely. Um, I had opportunity in one in uh new york one in atlanta and then it wasn't confirmed but like maybe another one in chicago um if i was out a little bit longer um but for here on a cost of living adjusted basis i was better off financially um because i mean obviously we know new york and chicago um cost of living standards are you know ridiculous (laughs) ridiculous <laughs> um and so so atlanta was like you know strong competition in that aspect um but i still was making more financially here and i was still closer to home and i you know i had been away from home for like um four years of college and then you know i went to the, the military so i was gone for a year for basic and all that stuff too um so i you know i kind of missed home and you know the fact that i was better off financially here um, it just made more sense. Um, and yeah, I have thought about, you know, going to another city, which I probably will, um, eventually I would say within like the next four or five years. Um, I think there are two, two, I'm gonna give you two answers. One answer is, you know, stateside and the other is overseas. Um, I would like to move to I know it's going to be counterintuitive to what I just said, but I would like to move to uh, L.A. Okay. <laughs> um, the, obviously, the cost of living there is ridiculous as well, but um, L.A. has become like a second home for me. I love um, L.A. I've been out there uh, multiple times. Every time I've been out there, I loved it. Um, museums out there, um, the vibe, the the culture out there is something that's attractive yeah. to me. Um and uh, I think that would be like a pretty good place to live, at least for a couple of years. Just, you know, just to say you yeah. live there. 
Um, overseas, I'm going to say London. Um, again, counterintuitive <laughs> to my initial statement, uh, seeing as they have one of the highest cost of livings. Um, in Which the world. is shocking, but also should be expected. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> London is uh, super, super expensive. Um, but I, I would, if I was to work somewhere out of the country um, and you know stay over there for you know two, three years, um, I, w- I think London would be it. I think because it's it's close enough to being like home, but like different enough to say, you know, I'm out of the country. Um, And also I wouldn't have to learn like a completely new language. (laughs) Uh, So it's probably probably lazy on my part, but um, I just, I think it makes sense. Um, uh, That's definitely one of the the top places I would want to go uh, and work a couple years, get some experience, Um, have a couple of buddies out in London um, and, you know, they're cool. And, you know, when they were here, we hung out and, did like a bunch of crazy stuff for like a week straight. Um, <laughs> I was wore out by the end of the week. <laughs> um, if you ever moved to London, yeah, they, let me know. Cause that's on my list too. I'll, I'll join yeah, you. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and it, the thing about it is it's not completely out of reach because my work has an office there. Yeah. Um, and so if I can, you know, finagle my way, <laughs> and to go into the London office, um, I, I would definitely take that opportunity. Yeah. I think that you have two cities on my list. LA and London are on my list. Um, obviously, I live in Chicago, so I wouldn't move to Chicago. Um, I don't think I could do New York. It's just not me. The, the identity of New York is just not me. Um, Atlanta would be on my list, as would Houston, Tampa, Miami, and D.C., um, I think DC is a very slept on city for growth and high exposure to a multitude of, you know, different, different areas and different careers and just the melting pot almost in a sense um, in that area. And then my other one would be Toronto. I think Toronto is obviously, you know, one of the most diverse cities in the world. And I think it's, it has a lot of um, new, new urban feel to it in regards to just being exposed to, um, people from different paths of life, whether it be West Indies, whether it be African, um, Muslim, Middle Eastern, whatever it may be. And I think that you get a lot of, um, you get a lot of experiences that help you long-term in your career because you have a better understanding of how the world works and how you can play a role in that world. Um, and so one yeah, of the, I think Toronto. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, you know, I've, I've taken into consideration is like growing my brand as I get older and I, I get, you know, more involved in business and more involved in, you know, social interactions. It's actually something I'm looking forward to post COVID is being able to like get out and about and interact and network with people in Chicago. Um, so I'm curious, how are you approaching, you know, growing your brand as you get older and older? Um, I've started to take it a lot more seriously within like the past like year. Um, year and some change, um, you know, because I kind of looked at, you know, the position that me and you are in, whereas like we have this, you know, pool of knowledge regarding like financial institutions, instruments, et cetera. And I kind of just take it for all oh, it's, you know, nothing, you know, too special um, because, you know, we're, you know, knee deep yeah. in it. But like I talked to you know, one of my good friends and he's like, no, bro, like that's, 
that's it. That's impressive. Like that's you know a really good skill set to have and like a good pool of knowledge to be able to you know have access to. Um, and so you know I kind of took that and was like, okay, let me start positioning myself to you know make my personal brand and like develop it to you know being attached to you know having this you know financial knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's like a lot of information that you and I both know, but is not, you know, inherent to people who are do not do what we do. Um and I, and I think that was like an important realization for me because it kind of made me start like, you know, positioning myself to, you know, benefit from the 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 human connection of like social media. Like I, for a long time I was kind of like, you know, don't really post, you know, post every now and then, don't really like do social media, et cetera, um, in order to, you know, like focus more and, you know, be more productive, et cetera. But I kind of looked at it as, you know, the people from, you know, our predecessors and, you know, our industry, what we do, they, you know, they didn't have this aspect of human connectivity of social media. Um, so the way that they did it may not necessarily be applicable to you know this generation in you know 2021 um so i kind of tried to take the principles that they you know kind of created and developed and like you know evolve it into you know something more modern and i think social media is the way to do that as far as far as like you know spreading information and um things like that and you know being helpful to people who are not like in the industry like you know there's everyone can invest like everyone can you know have a strategy for you know their Roth account like everyone can do all these things they just don't really know about it um and like you know people who invest through Robinhood like Robinhood is you know super user friendly but even then they still don't know like you know what a PE ratio is or yeah. how to interpret um price, but I made that price to earning is, is important it's extremely important yeah yeah absolutely um like I made that post on my story the other day um, about the, some post was talking about like, oh, the stocks to look at over the next 10 years. And like they referenced the uh, PE and PS, which is price to sales ratio. Um, and they were like super high. And I'm like, that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, so like you, people would interpret that as, okay, well, if this price to sales ratio is 98, that number seems high. So it must be a good stock to buy. It was like, well, no, not necessarily. The uh, 98 PS ratio is saying that you're paying $98 for $1 of sales yeah. revenue um, for a company, which is drastically expensive for a stock. Like, if there was something you were looking to buy and they said, okay, you know, it's worth, the sales is worth $1, $1 but, you know, we're going to charge you $98 to yeah. buy it. It's like, oh, you wouldn't do that. Like, <laughs> so, like, I think being able to, analyze and like related to you know other people and you know average everyday people who are not in finance like being able to relate to their um understanding of it is super important um and that's kind of like what i want my brand to focus on and shift towards um just helping people understand all this yeah so how do i phrase this um you mentioned you know, PS ratio and, and all that. So what do you, how do you advise someone interested in investing in stocks to 
sort of assess the value of a stock as they move forward? Like what are the four main hitting points for you um, when, when assessing a stock? Okay. Um, to start, I try to, from like a high level, I start by thinking of what sectors I want exposure to. Like I kind of look at the next like, you know, six months to a year and say, you know, what, what stocks are, what sectors are positioned to do well? Like, you know, do I think there's going to be a downturn? Do I think, you know, the economy is going to maintain its current um, momentum? Do I think it's going to slow down, but still be positive, et cetera? Um, and just look at the next six months to a year and think about what sectors. Like, do I want to get in financials? Um, do I want to go, you know, some like new uh, ESG ETF just came out. It's like, okay, like, you know, it's environment, um, sustainability, governance. Um, that's like ESG and it's like, you know, uh, all about sustainability and stuff like that. So it's like, okay, you know, if I want to, if I think that ESG is, you know, going to be a thing of the future where like everyone is going to have to start implementing ESG into their business, um, an ESG ETF might, you know, look pretty attractive. Um, or, or if I say, you know, um, I want to go to, you know, REITs or something like that or, you know, whatever sector I think is going to do good. That's kind of how I start off. And when I look at metrics, um, uh, I use a PE ratio um, for starters. That's kind of like the the, the first go to um, anything that anything that's any PE ratio that's under the P, the uh, average PE ratio for the S&P 500, I think um, is worth taking a look at. Um, I think it, it opens the door. Uh, just from like a pricing perspective, like, okay, well, even if the stock is good or bad, the pricing is, you know, somewhat attractive. So, you know, let me at least take like a couple more steps into yeah. it. Um, if the company isn't currently generating a profit for, um, obviously, you know, but for the listeners, um, people tend to use a price to sales ratio to measure uh, the value or pricing um, of a stock. And so um, if it doesn't have, you know, a profit, I would use a P PS ratio. Um, I think, I think the, well, you know, I focus on dividends. So I think the dividend yield is very important. Um, I don't want a dividend yield that's too high because that leads me to believe that there's some pricing distortion. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, for the listeners, the dividend yield is, um, the average annual dividend divided by the price of the stock. So it's telling you, you know, how much money you're going to get back every year from that stock um, percentage wise. So if the dividend yields 4%, then, you know, every year you're going to get 4% back uh, from that stock in distributions. Um, so if that, if that price is too, if that percentage uh, dividend yield is too high, it means that the denominator of the price is having some valuation uh, issues, some volatility issues. It's moving up and down too much. Um, so if you, if you see a dividend yield of 10%, you should probably stay away from it. <laughs> Just like a, a good rule of thumb. Uh, I try to stay within like the four to 6% range. Um, and so that's like number two. Number three, what would be my third metric? Probably, I would even say EPS. EPS is distorted too much nowadays. Um, <laughs> I would look at I would look at the the profit margin, the gross profit margin. Okay. 
um, to see like how their business is doing uh, relative to like their competitors. Um, like, are they in their traditional business? Are they making more money than their competitors? Okay. Uh, as we get towards the end here, I have two more questions. I don't want to take too much of your time. Uh, two things that I think are important. Um, I'm going to skip this question about Tim. Uh, balancing your responsibilities and then maintaining a consistent workout while you balance your work life. I know you, that you constantly post, you know, going to Brown's Fit. You know, how do you how do you manage that with a busy schedule of work? Um, so I have at first I was doing it kind of like on the fly, like, you know, hey, you know, let me just I go to the gym. Or meditate every day at noon. Yeah. Um, that was kind of like my general rule of thumb. But now, just like within the past like month, um, I've been using a schedule. So, you know, I want to, you know, wake up for, you know, an hour to hour and a half. I want to read, you know, um, even if that kind of like transitions a little bit into my work day, like I'm okay with that. Like, just, you know, sacrificing a little bit of work time to, you know, have my smooth start to the day. Like, I think that's important. Um, so, but I made a schedule, like, you know, I want to read, for an hour to hour and a half, you know, I went to work and then at noon I will either meditate or go to the gym. And when I come back, continue working. Um, and then after work, study for CFA or and then for two hours. And then after that, it's like eight o'clock. So, you know, I got about three hours, four hours to do what I want. Um, and I kind of try to stick to that schedule. Um, and it's been helpful. Just like having that schedule like on paper, just like this is what every day, pretty much every day should look like. Obviously, you know, you're going to have phone calls and meetings and et cetera. So things are going to be different from time to time. But as like a general like rule of thumb, like my day should look like this. And so like I would implore all the listeners to write down your optimal day, like whatever you deem is like the most optimal schedule for you to be productive and also be, you know, a human and be, be a person. Uh, I think that's important. And also scheduling, um, time for people you deem important. Um, so like sometimes like, you know, instead of studying, um, for two hours or reading for two hours, I would, you know, give my undivided attention to my girlfriend or, um, my undivided attention to, you know, friends that I'm hanging out with or, you know, something like that. Just cause you know, those people, should not be the bearer of like the crumbs of your time. Yeah. Like you shouldn't just say like, Oh, I'm going to do everything I need to do. And then whatever I have left over is for, you know, yeah. people like, no, like they deserve to be a priority as well. So I kind of try to schedule some of that time in there too. So, um, are you usually done like, at work? Yeah. Are you usually done with work at six? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then I'm usually done around like five thirty six. do you do guided meditation or do you do it by yourself? uh by myself um but i listen to uh like meditation playlists and like i put my airpods in and turn the um noise cancellation on and then uh like just listen to those playlists while i meditate and still for about 20 minutes 30 minutes something like okay. that that's much longer than I, i'm i'm currently in the five to ten minute range but i know that as you get more <laughs> yeah it's rough when you first start i think the first day i went like super super hard like i meditated for like you know. 20 minutes. And I was like, you know, I like that. And then like the next day, 
or not next day, but like, you know, I took like a little five minute break. I was like, you know what, I'm gonna do it again. Yeah. And then I did like another 20 minutes and I was like, you know, let me see how an hour feels. Like, and I just, you know, went crazy <laughs> that first day. I've never done that again, by the way. Um, but it was just like uh, a really good feeling because I was, you know, stressed and um, it was a good way to, you know, remove myself from all those like pressures and external factors and just like be unilaterally me. Yeah. Um, and so I think about 20 minutes, uh, 30 minutes a day is like really good for okay. me. Uh, and you, you're studying for the CFA. Have you taken the one or two yet? Uh, no, I'm sitting for level one right now. Um, I was supposed to have taken it, but COVID pushed it back. Um, and then, uh, I was supposed to take it again or yeah, take it in February of this year. Um, but over the holidays, um, got caught up in Thanksgiving, Christmas, et cetera, got a little too busy. Um, so I had to end up pushing it back again of my own accord, um, to July. So, okay. uh, I'm, I'm set going for July. That's a lot. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's rough. It's worth the investment, though. It's, that's the that's something that I need to address. I have to take my licensing exam for work, and I've just been so busy with my, my like nine to five, and I usually don't get off till six thirty, seven thirty at the earliest, and then I'll get home till eight, and then I usually work out after work. I'm, I need to start working out in the morning, yeah. honestly, and then studying on the bus rides yeah. to and from work. But it's yeah. tough. It's it's all about yeah. being diligent and staying disciplined. But that comes with time. Yeah, every, every time I'm studying, I think to myself, chop wood, carry water. Like that's like kind of like when it's so, when it's sucking like really bad, and you just want to you know go to sleep or play the game or you know whatever you want to do. Other than that, you just, I think to myself, chop wood, carry water. Um, and it's, it's been working so far. It's just you know Christmas time and Thanksgiving time just took a lot of time away that I needed. I felt like I needed. Yeah. Um, like I think I was, I'm still equipped to take it. Like if I was to have to take it in February, but um, I was like, nah, I kind of want this to be like a for sure yeah. thing. I'll, I'll get out and wait a little okay. bit. Do you have any final remarks to the listeners before we log off? Um, yeah, I just want to say that we, our generation, like I know we kind of like harp on our generation um, about a lot of the things that we do or like don't do. Um, in like a bad light, but I would like to say that like our generation is like vastly ahead of prior generations in certain regards, like, you know, mental health, um, uh, financial literacy, um, and all these aspects that were not available to people, you know, two generations ago, like, like, you know, our parents. Um, so I think we are making progress. I think a lot of people like to harp on our generation about like a lot of things. Uh, that we do bad and wrong or don't do, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think we're doing a good job. Um, and I think that, you know, as long as we keep trying and chucking along, I, I think we'll get there. Um, that's kind of how I wanted to yeah. end my final I note. agree. I think that with the position that we were put in financially and with the markets, I think that we've made the best out of the situation and are continuously improving on uh, what we can improve on. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, To all my listeners listening, uh, just remember to stay authentic this week. Thank you.